Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it is good to be in God's house this morning with each of you. Uh, Leslie, thank you for reading our lesson. And uh, it is uh, with great joy that we welcome Reverend Casey Langley Orr into this fellowship. She was with us yesterday at our leadership retreat that we held here with all of our elected leaders and many of our key lay leaders. And Casey, it's a great joy to have you. We welcome you and you will uh, get a chance to meet her after the benediction out in the narthex and I hope that you'll greet her and welcome her. And in this coming and going, of course, you may have noted from the bulletin that Bryson Ritchie, our organ internist, will be leaving us back to Bowling Green for full-time teaching in Bowling Green. And Bryson, we're uh, so, so sorry to see you go. And we appreciate so much uh, the ministry that you have had among us, among our youth, as well as our adults at the bench and just, just hanging out with us for the last year. We're grateful. And I know that you want to express your appreciation to Bryson as well for So if you're visiting with us this morning, you've caught us right in the thick of this series on Genesis. The word Bereshith for Genesis means, of course, origins or beginnings. And we're talking together during these two months about the human purpose. And last week, we got to Genesis 2 and 3, where we talked about the human problem. That at the dawn of creation, God gave to us 
vocation to till the garden, permission is all you can eat, and one prohibition, one restriction. Freedom never comes without boundaries. But Adam and Eve perceived the boundary of God more as a barrier to their personal freedom. And they did what all of us have done and do. They trusted the creature more than the Creator. And when that happens, disobedience always leads to the same end. Naked and ashamed, remember the word in Hebrew naked means defenseless. Defenseless and ashamed, they seclude themselves from God. They hide from God as if we can. And when God comes calling, of course, that's when the finger pointing begins. Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I was afraid. For I have hidden, I discovered I was naked. What have you done, said God. And Adam, like any man, said, it was the woman. <laughs> Eve, what have you done? Talk to the snake, she said. And the blame and shame begins. The he said, she said, the rationalizing, the justifying, the buck passing. And of course, there are consequences, and it appears in Genesis 3 as if the garden party is over. They are relocated somewhere east of Eden. That's an interesting phrase, east of Eden. The word Eden means delight, and so they have been cast out of this delightful beginning, but not before God comes to their defense. The text we ended with last week ends on a note of grace. I love this, Genesis 3, verse 21. And God made garments of skin and clothed them. In other words, God Himself came to their defense. And I submit to you that there is gospel even in the beginning. And then Genesis 4, this is, a, this is an interesting story. The spiral of sin continues in the offspring of Adam and Eve, apparently. This story of two brothers, Cain and Abel, reveals the truth that we're not only accountable to God, but the truth is we're accountable to each other within the human family. Relating to God and to our neighbor, be it in Brentwood or South Africa, they are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, they are inextricably bound. 1 John 4.20 says, whoever says he loves God but hates his brother, sister, he's a liar. For whoever does not love brother or sister that he sees every day cannot possibly love God whom he has never seen. And so the story, the spiral, continues. It's interesting that there are several sociological realities in this chapter that are a part of the, the cultural fabric of the day. One is this issue of sibling rivalry. And that's a real thing. Siblings, often, brothers and sisters, spend more time together in their childhood than they do with their parents. Now, you know if you're a sibling or if you have siblings that, that uh, this can be a very complicated relationship and is influenced by personal treatment, by parents' treatment, by birth order, and by personality. Isn't it amazing that you can have two children, three years apart, raised by the same parents, and they are completely different from one another? It can be intense, especially when kids are very close in age and are of the same gender. 
We had a Sunday school teacher here at Brentwood that was teaching a few weeks ago on the Ten Commandments, and they were teaching about honor your parents, honor your mother and father, and at the end of that class, these were seven-year-olds, she said, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And one little boy said, yes, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) I mean, it's real. Sibling rivalry, it's a real thing. There's another reality in the social fabric of this text, and that is that there's an occupational tension in this text. Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. I know the farmer and the cowboy should be friends, but in that culture, there was antipathy between these two vocations. That's real. It's in the fabric of the text. And the other issue, as we mentioned, is about birth order. This is a culture... This is a context in which the culture favors the firstborn male above all. Now, out of curiosity, let's, let's take a little survey. How many of you are firstborn in your family? Raise your hands. Okay, I'm, that makes sense. I'm, keep your hand. Yes, I can, I can see that. Okay. Uh, how many of you are the baby in your family? Raise, oh my goodness, we got a lot of babies here. Um, How many of you are like me, the well-adjusted middle child? Raise your hand. Yeah, you're the consensus. How many of you are only children? Lord, have mercy. There are not many of you here. You are very, very special. But it's real. In fact, the firstborn male in this culture gets the double portion of the estate of the father. When the father passes, the double portion of the inheritance And yet what's intriguing is, as this story, as Genesis unfolds, God seems to be doing something radically different. Notice in Genesis, it's often the second child who is chosen, who is called. It's the same whether it's Isaac and Ishmael or Jacob and Esau, it's the second. It's the same with Joseph and his brothers. In the New Testament, you see this unfolding in the story of the prodigal and the elder brother, that God doesn't just choose the culturally brightest and best among us, but God actually chooses the least, the the lost, the last, and the less likely to do His work. It's radically different. Now, these two brothers are as different as night and day. In fact, you see it in their names. Cain means creative life-giving, vitality. Abel means vapor or wisp or nothingness. There's different as night and day, but they do have one thing in common. You see this, it's implicit in verse 3. Apparently, both these boys worship God because verse 3 says that both presented an offering to the Lord. Cain, being a farmer, gave some of the crops And Abel gave the firstlings of the flock, very specific, and the fat portions, which later on in the temple sacrificial system, that is the prescribed sacrificial sin offering given by the temple priests, the fat portions. And by the way, this is where, in the offering, this is where the story goes south. Verse 4 says that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Yahweh accepts one and rejects the other. 
And the writer gives no explanation. I, I don't know about you, but I always try to fill in the blank, don't you, with the revised chapel version of what really happened. And so we're given to think maybe Abel's offering was sacrificial, maybe it was generous, and maybe Cain's was superficial and shallow, maybe, and that's why God was displeased. But the writer doesn't say. It's interesting that neither does the writer say how Cain actually knew that God had rejected his offering. How did he know that his brother's was accepted? Was it a feeling? Was it an intuition? Was it something he discerned? Was it a sentiment? We don't know. At any rate, we know the response to the rejection. Cain was angry and his countenance fell. I love that Hebrew word, ze'er, for countenance. It means brightness. It means splendor. It means that Cain has lost his doxology. He's lost his joy. And apparently, it's visible in his countenance. It's tangible. You can see it in his body language. But my goodness, you should see sometimes the body language from my angle here in the pulpit occasionally. You can see it. Cicero was right when he said the face is the window of the soul. It's visible. It's tangible. He's lost his joy. And apparently, even God notices this because God addresses it with Cain. In fact, he approaches Cain with a question, not just one question. There are several, in fact, and this is so God. God doesn't just come to us with edicts and pronouncements. I don't know how it is with you, but more often God comes with queries, with questions. Why are you so angry? He says to Cain, why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching. Notice the language, lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. By the way, it's interesting that this is the first occasion in the Scriptures where the word sin is actually used in Genesis 4. It means, you know what it means, it means to miss the mark. It means to go astray. And notice in chapter 3 in the garden, sin is more of an enticement. But in chapter 4, it's a force. It's a predator. It's lurking. It's lying in wait. It's ready to pounce. In fact, it reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and sober-minded for your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour sin. Another question is, who, who is Cain actually angry with? Well, maybe God. After all, he senses God's rejection. Maybe Cain is angry with his brother. After all, he was accepted by God. Maybe it's both. Maybe here's a young man who's upset with his brother and his God. And the implicit point, I think, in this story is that my relationship to God and my relationship to you are two sides of the same coin. Your relationship to God and to your sister and brother, two sides of the same. You cannot separate the vertical dimension of your life from the horizontal dimension 
In truth, I don't have to tell you, you know this is right, that when you're at odds with your spouse or with your neighbor or with your brother or with your congregant, you are at odds with God. It's like there's a block in your prayer life. It's like you're 50% there because all is not right. In fact, I, I think that Jesus, before he preached that Sermon on the Mount, when he was preparing his sermon, I think he had his Torah open to this story so that when he preaches, when you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what do you do? You get up, you leave your gift, and you go first be reconciled to your sister, brother, and then come and offer your gift. What does that mean? Now, this is really difficult for a preacher to say but relationships may be more important than the offering. Or maybe relationships are a part of our offering to God. I think that's it. Reconciliation, restored harmony, is the greatest gift that you can give, not just to your neighbor, but to your God. Because haven't you discovered it's one thing to have a brother it's another thing to be a brother. That's a harder thing to do. But I want to go back to the question, why, why the anger? Why so angry? I have a theory. I may be way off, and if I am, you will tell me after the benediction. I don't have to ask you to do that. You'll do that. But I think Cain's resentment is displaced anger. It's aimed at his brother. But I'm thinking that he's really disappointed in himself. Have you been there? Maybe when he saw his brother's devotion, he felt insecure about his own. Maybe he was already a little envious. Maybe he was already a victim in his mind. Maybe he was already a little jealous, a little defensive, a little resentful, and it doesn't take much on that kind of psychological cocktail to trip the old trigger. I think he's angry with himself. Now, I don't like to talk about people but I'll confess to you that the person that I have the biggest problem with, you know who it is? It's me. It's me. And if I'm not careful, I can aim my frustration sometimes in the wrong direction when actually the only way to deal with that is simply confession. Just to give it to God. Now, I've noticed that sometimes we, we kind of justify our anger. I'm sure you don't, but I have before. We justify, we rationalize our anger rather than confess it. It's an interesting thing that we do, and the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. We're a chip off the old Adam's block in that regard. There's a movie I want to recommend to you. It's one of the finest foreign films I think I've ever seen. It's called The Insult. It's a movie based in Beirut. Some of you know that we were in Beirut last spring. We love the Middle East and what's happening in the ministry, the beginning, the, this initiative that is beginning uh, to form. This is a story about a Palestinian man and a Lebanese Christian who insult each other. And the insult leads to physical blows, and finally there's a trial, 
And the news of the trial, as you can imagine, in Beirut brings up old wounds and there's violence in the streets, all because of this insult between two men. And during the trial, the story flashes back in the lives of these two men, one Lebanese, one Palestinian, and you begin to see how when they were little boys, each of them was abused by the opposing side. As this comes out in the trial, the two lawyers finally, after days and days, end up in a draw because they agree that no abuse on one side ever justifies continued abuse on the other side. Usually the rationalization for violence in any form is who hit who first. But maybe the larger question is who will accept the last blow without delivering a punch in response? Now, there ought to be a scripture somewhere like turn the other cheek or something like that. Unresolved anger is destructive. It's lethal. Someone said it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And again, Jesus has this story in mind, I'm convinced, when he says in his Sermon on the Mount, hey, you've heard it said, you shall not murder and whoever murders is liable to judgment, but I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. That's where it starts. And so it is in this story that anger gets the best of one of those boys, gets the best of Cain. And in a moment of outrage and aggression, rather than confessing to God, he assumes the place of God. And with one blow, he kills his brother. And God, who is always a God of accountability, comes again. Here's another question. God, in all his questions, Cain, where's your brother? And the cover-up begins. Hmm? How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And at this point... In the story, you notice that the language becomes kind of like a trial. God, who's the judge, puts Cain on the stand. There are consequences for the action, and the sentence is pronounced. He curses the crops. The produce will be lacking. You'll be a fugitive, he says to Cain, a nomad, a wanderer of the earth. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Cain, now who is the defendant, interrupts the sentencing. Objection, your honor, he says. And he cries for mercy. This punishment is greater than I can deal with. You have driven me away from the soil. You are hiding your face from me. I'm a fugitive and a wanderer, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Objection, he says. And I expect in the story to hear the judge say, overruled. Give him the chair. It's premeditated. It's first degree. Lethal injection. But what God, the judge, says is absolutely shocking. God says, objection sustained. And God has mercy on this older brother. And watch what God does. He marks 
him. Now, I'm, I'm serious when I say this. This is the first tattoo in the Bible. He tattoos Cain. Whoever kills Cain, says God, will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. He marks him so that no one who confronts him will kill him. Cain is a marked man. This is where the phrase comes from. Sin always leaves a mark. But I have to tell you, I've always thought that the mark of Cain was a punitive thing, like heaping on the guilt. But this mark is not so much a sign of guilt as it is a sign of protection. He tattoos Cain with mercy and grace. What that means is this, and this is the point of the story. God will not let go of the unreconciled brother. He just won't let go because God has no only children. This is a father who has two sons, who loves two sons, who extends himself to two sons, Lebanese and Palestinian, black and white, Russian and American, citizen and refugee. The God who calls the world into being will never stop calling even the chaotic brother. And he marks him. And the last detail reminds me of the great mystery of God. It's not just individual, it's global. God's protection at the end of the story extends into the land of Nod. What's that? It's east of Eden. It's outside of delight. It's the far country. God extends grace to the place that is believed to be beyond hope, beyond protection, beyond humaneness, and yet God's face is still turned towards the prodigal. Does that sound familiar? It should. We have a name for it. It's called gospel. I believe that Genesis is misplaced. I believe it ought to be between Matthew and Mark because it's good news. It's nothing but good news from the beginning. This is the gospel of Genesis. And in the fullness of time, another son will come, another boy will be born, a brother late in time, who will be the only son of the father, and he will bear the curse of sin and shame. He too will be taken out to a field, a skull-shaped field, where he will be stripped by his brothers and beaten, mocked, and ridiculed, and cursed, and hanged on a tree. And he will bear the mark of guilt and shame for me and you. And by his wounds, we are marked as children of God. It's gospel. Grace always leaves a mark. Let me give you one example and I'm finished. When I was in seminary, Back in the 80s, we had a, a student who came. He was older than most of us. He, had, he said he'd been in the Navy, and he had been called to preach, kind of a wild man, and he had a tattoo on his arm, 
uh, of a naked woman with a heart and an arrow through it. I mean, all the students in the class loved it when he held up his arm to raise a question. And he was called ministry, but he was marked. I remember hearing him preach in the chapel one day and he lifted up the arm. And there it was. And he lifted it up to say, in essence, there is gospel, there is new life, and look at it. Sin always leaves a mark, but so does grace. And grace never stops calling and never gives up. Grace will follow you east of Eden, even into the land of wandering where it is actually possible by the grace of God to be at home in a land of wandering, not because of where you are, but because of who is with you. Friends, you are marked, and your life and witness needs to leave a mark on somebody else for Jesus' sake. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.